0: Listening. to the living room living room north, north. Living room north. Room north. Living room north. podcast hey um, we do recognize that uh, there's always uh, newbies uh, new to TLR folks um, especially the dawn of each semester and so let me say this I mentioned this during the the welcome that uh, we typically teach, Uh, out of series, sometimes series, or two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. uh, We do our best uh, to uh, teach uh, the scriptures out of the Bible, kind of give a couple of kind of nuggets of what we believe to be true, uh, potentially uh, helpful, and how we can apply it to our everyday lives. And then a lot of some of the folks that are sitting next to you then go and talk about the talks or the messages um, in small groups. And so again, if it's your first time, that's typically uh, what happens. And so if you walked in and you're brand new and maybe you would consider yourself a Jesus follower, uh, well, our hope that you would come to find this place to be very helpful and flourishing uh, for your faith. Uh, But maybe if you're new here and you're like, oh, maybe I've never even been to a church or it's been forever and you're not really sure about Jesus, or you're not even really sure what Jesus thinks about you, um, I would say you're equally as welcome. Uh, as we say all the time, you can certainly belong uh, well before you believe uh, some of the things that, that we believe. Uh, about God and uh, Jesus. And so we're so glad you're here. And so I get to kick off this series, The Games We Play. And uh, it wasn't that long ago, right? If you think about it, a month where Christmas was happening. And uh, for a lot of you, you know that I'm married to Ellen. We've got three boys. It's just magical, uh, magical around the holidays. These, this year, my boys got a number of different things. Thank you, grandparents. Um, but what was on their Christmas list were some games, Okay, Carter, uh, one of our twins, asked for this game I had never heard of. It was like Party Uno, um, which, again, sounds like something I played during my undergrad. And uh, he asked for that. Uh, My other twin, Maddox, asked for, you've ever played the Game of Life? I didn't even know. They they have like even a new version of that. And so uh, we were all about games. And uh, so even over the break, we taught my oldest, Jackson, uh, Phase 10. Anybody played Phase 10 before? Anybody? Yeah, it's a great game. Uh, when Ellen and I got married, uh, we were, were two competitive humans that got married. And then so we would, we would try to beat each other at certain games. We really took to Phase 10. And I thought, hey, I'm, I'm a worthy component. I typically win in the games that I play. And she would then end up just destroying me, you know, it seemed like for years. And we taught Jackson Phase Ten over the break, and Jackson again, our oldest. He's 12. He's in the sixth grade. Very uh, incredible human, smart kid, great at games. And Ellen and I, you know, sometimes when you're a parent, especially when they get to this age, you're like, should Should we kind of go easy? Should we let them win? Um, but I'm like, I'm gonna just bury this kid. Uh no, just kidding. Um, but Ellen and I, we just the game happens. We end up going like we end up beating Jackson pretty pretty easily. And he's like, so sort we're of like, did you? Would you like? Do you, you think the game was awesome? He was like, this game stinks. It's trash. I'm never playing it again. It's like, all right. Wow, we are great parents. Um, so we played this, and so they've again. They're really into games right now. And, and I just want to start tonight, just out of curiosity. I want you to think back when you were a kid, okay? And what were some? This is not a rhetorical question. What were some of the games you played? What board games, video games? Athletics, you know, just shout it out. What, what were some of the board What? Go fish? Fortnite? Wow. Wow. Wee Bowling? Yes. Martha, did you say Wee Bowling? Guitar Hero? Holy smokes, I haven't even thought about that. What about this? Hold on a second. What about again in kind of the board game? Just curious, the board game variety. Sorry, Monopoly, Yahtzee, oh, cute. Twizzlers, that's a candy. Um, just kidding, Twister, got it. Candyland, yes, always a favor. Okay, sorry guys, it's like, you're like, yes, I've been waiting for this moment. Um, Here's the truth, right? I don't know, obviously, everybody in this room, but it got pretty, again, excited uh, and lots of energy talking about the games we used to play. And so anyways, we know as kids, we're introduced to all sorts of varieties of games, right? From something you play on a board uh, with a person or on a field with a lot of people, the experience of playing games brought us a ton of thrills, right? And a lot of excitement. And then we grow up and so do the games, we play. And I don't just mean Face uh, 10, you know, or Yahtzee, those types of things. No, the, these games, again, don't necessarily involve pieces or, or puzzles, uh, but something far more dynamic and even sometimes far more difficult. These are the games we play in life, games with other people, uh, games with the inner voice or the inner critic, games we even play with our faith, And we want to win these games, right? No one wants to lose, you know, at the game of life. And so what if there was a way, uh, I'm just curious, what if there was a way that you could actually win at some of these games that we might play with our faith, with our future, with our friends? Sometimes the games we play when we grow up, like why does there always have to be a winner and a loser? How can we win at this game of life? How can we really do that in all areas? And so over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about just that. The games we play, maybe how we even play. And even for maybe even some of you, some of the games you might need to stop playing. And so I think actually uh, this is the perfect time to talk about this, right? Because at the dawn of the year, it seems like every single one of us is evaluating our lives, All right, we throw out resolutions, habits, goals, things like that. You know, we're evaluating our lives, where we are, where we've been, where we want to go, where we want to be. It's just part of our culture to do this at the turn of a calendar. And so here's the thing, you know this, the source of this, by the way, the source of this cultural phenomenon is a great thing because ultimately we do want to win, right? We want to be our best. We want to live our best life. We we just really want to get it right. And especially for hanging out with college-age friends for years and for a number of you, we know you want to look back over your college-age years and go, man, I... I think I got that right, or at least I want to get it right. We all do. We want to get it right when it comes to life. But the reality is, uh, life sometimes doesn't seem like it's going right. It's not going well. We're we're always missing something, seeking something, searching for something. And so that's why I think, hey, this is the best time of the year, right, to start searching, because it, it just feels like easy to do that, to get a fresh start. Maybe you've even used that language with friends, family members. Oh, yeah, January, you know, here we go. Gonna get a fresh start. You know, just it's gonna be a new me, new me, new year. You know, like that's right. That's the language we use. But here's the reality. Okay, let's just be honest. Let's call it what it is. There's a problem with starting fresh Every January, because every single January, we need a fresh start. I don't know why I went high there. Um, There's something about our rhythms, our habits, our focus and attention that just gets off track. It's not where we want it to go. It just keeps happening. And so every, every January, there's something that happens within our culture, within our minds, Ah, got to get some of these areas right. I got I to start anew. So what we typically do is we kind of look around for ways to kind of, again, what we can do to make it right. So what do we do? Some of you, you, you go to Target, which Target is amazing. And you look for that just totes adorbs new planner, okay? It's got to look right. It's got to organize my life right. You got to get that planner. Some of you get that brand new gym membership, Okay. you you, you laughed, you know, uh, as a, as a CrossFitter. Um, I just kidding. Uh, some of you get that gym membership. Others of you, maybe you don't want the gym membership, but you get the app, you know, like there's that calorie counting app, uh, which you totally lie on, but you get the app that counts your calories. But what we end up doing, whether it's again, a planner, again, getting the gym membership, whatever. We're always looking for something, again, external, right? Searching for something on the outside to fix these broken rhythms on the inside. But, but what if I could tell you, which is what we're going to get into the series about next few weeks, what if, what if the key to getting the game of life right was flipping that around? In fact, uh, in the first few chapters, Of Revelation, uh, Jesus addresses seven churches who were consistently trying to get it right, to get life right. Now here's the thing, uh, Revelation, it's one of the books of the Bible, uh, it's the last book of the New Testament that draws a ton of fascination and mystery from a lot of people, and to be to, just to be honest, we rarely spend a lot of time in Revelation. It's filled with prophetic language and imagery that truthfully, still after years of reading it, it can be ridiculously confusing. But when you start to understand the context, uh, it definitely helps you read it a little bit better. And so here's the thing. And some of you know this because you've read it. At the end of Revelation, it really focuses on the end times, the end of days. But at the beginning, the message really is from Jesus, again, to these seven established churches and cities in the Roman world. This was roughly around 60 years after Jesus was crucified and when he rose from the grave and his message was starting to boom and spread, but still, again, facing some opposition in the many areas. And uh, there's actually, this is crazy, uh, just in in prepping for tonight, there was this Roman emperor, never heard of him, named Domitian. He actually fashioned himself, called himself Lord and God. So the culture around these churches that Jesus was talking to was filled with just... Honestly, worship of everything, everything possible besides Jesus. And one of the churches uh, was in a place called Laodicea. Okay, just think kind of like modern day Turkey, Asia Minor. And I want to show you actually where this is on a map. Okay, so let's put Laodicea up there. So this is the Lycus River Valley. You can see Laodicea right there. Uh, Hierapolis, fun to say. Colossae, really fun to say. Lots of rivers flowing in there. I'll get back to that um, in a second. But here's the thing. This is what Jesus says to this church in Laodicea who wants to get their life right. We read this in Revelation three fifteen and 16. Hey, I know your deeds. I know your deeds, church, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Next. So there we go. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I know your deeds. I know your actions. I know the way that you live, that you want to live, the way that your life reflects kind of this lukewarm spirituality. You're neither hot nor cold. You're in this weird, undefined middle ground, and it's certainly not refreshing at all. And so here's the thing. The reality is the Laodiceans, they knew all about lukewarm water. They relied on the water that came from the other cities. That's why I brought that map. So if you look at this map again, Lauren, if we could put that map up. Okay, look at the cities, okay? Their city was situated between Hierapolis, And Colossae, all right, the hot spring water that would actually flow from Hierapolis, it would start as a hot spring, but by the time it got to Laodicea, again, it would turn into lukewarm. Started hot for medicinal purposes, and then it would get lukewarm. And then there was cool, refreshing water, again, coming from Colossae, and by the time that it actually got to Laodicea, you guessed it, it turned lukewarm. Now, I need to pause here because um, if some of you have ever heard anyone teach, maybe it's a preacher, maybe you, you grew up and you heard somebody teach on this at a church, or maybe you watched somebody teach on this you know, somewhere on YouTube. Um, I've heard it taught a couple of times, and here's the reality. Uh, I think it's been taught wrong. And uh, I want to be really, really clear tonight. I've, I've heard it taught this way, that sometimes hot means Christianity, And sometimes cold uh, means not a Christian. So what Jesus is saying is that he would rather you be hot and act like a Jesus follower or cold and completely abandon the whole thing altogether. And if you've heard that before, if you've ever been taught that before, or if you ever hear that, in my opinion, uh, I think it's just not the proper teaching of this passage Jesus isn't saying, hey, act like a follower of Jesus or run a thousand miles in the opposite direction. No, in fact, the context of the passage, if you know that, like, it doesn't really make sense. So Jesus, you need to realize, is speaking to a church. He's not looking at the church. He's not looking at you. He's not looking at the believers telling them, hey, get it right or just get away. In this context, Both hot and cold are actually positive things. I mean, think about it. Jesus doesn't want to spit out hot or cold water out of his mouth. No, he wants to spit out the lukewarm water out of his mouth. In fact, I had to look this up. The word literally translates spit, translates to vomit, which makes a ton of sense. This is why I believe you should read the scriptures, because if lukewarm is literally translated as vomit that makes a lot of sense to me because most lukewarm liquids makes me want to just lose it okay so let's be let's be real about that i mean beverages are more refreshing right if they're hot or cold like any, any coffee fans out there? Obviously, coffee, it's, it's a great sensation. You, you love it when you're hot. You know, you're, excuse me, you love it when it's hot. Some of you like cold coffee. You find that refreshing. But nothing is more hideous, in my opinion, than lukewarm coffee. Okay? Chick-fil-A sweet tea. When it's room temperature? You gotta be kidding. That's, that's bonkers, all right? Right? Throw some ice in that mug, especially the pellet ice. Oh, geez, so good, okay? So the point here again is that hot and cold are both good. They're refreshing, whereas lukewarm isn't. So Jesus is essentially saying to this church that he would rather his people be hot or cold in their love for him, not lukewarm. And friends, lukewarm symbolizes apathy, a lack of enthusiasm, complacency, uselessness. And Jesus wanted the church of Laodicea to live as if Jesus actually mattered to them. See, that church fell into this reality of this lukewarm spirituality that was evident, so evident in their deeds and the way that they lived their lives and the way that they actually treated others and in the way that they viewed their savior. And this, this is the key. The way the Laodiceans were actually living was really a reflection of their attitude toward Jesus. And so you could say it this way, action and behavior reflects attitude and belief. If you're writing this down or taking notes, I'll say it again. Action and behavior reflects attitude and belief. Jesus goes on in verse 17. He says this, hey, you say, Church of Laodicea, you guys say, hey, I'm rich, we're rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, See, they were completely ignorant, unaware of their real condition, which would really explain their apathy towards Jesus. And what they are without Jesus got lost because of just their own self sufficiency. You see, uh, we would learn, um, and you can go look this up as well, that that Laodicea was a very kind of wealthy city. In fact, around uh, 60 AD, there was an earthquake. This is crazy. That kind of rocked that part of the world, and it was really a rich commercial center, kind of a thriving and textile industry, and where a lot of folks were looking for rescue, a lot of folks were looking for this imperial disaster relief, the Lady of of people were like, hey, uh-uh, we don't want the help. Hey, we're, we're good because we want to do this on our own. They wanted to do it their own way, and so Jesus is saying again, hey, you've forgotten what it's like. You've forgotten what, What you are without me, you just don't realize, he would say. Without me, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked because of your sinfulness. And so what they had been believing is that they felt like they had solved all the problems in their life. Hey, you may think you've solved all these problems in your life, Jesus is thinking, but I came to take care of your desperate sin problem. I came to die for you, for your sin problem, so you could experience intimacy with your heavenly Father. But you're living as if you do not need me anymore because you're trying to figure out ways to do fine just on your own. And so, friends, I, uh, because I love you, And I I, want to challenge you, um, and I feel like, hey, let's be honest. I mean, without even trying, how easy is it to fall into believing that we don't need Jesus anymore? But Jesus says to this church who's living that way, he's saying to, to you and to me a little bit in the same way, I want you to hear this In uh, verse 18, it says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Lots of symbolism here. Uh, (laughs) Let me do my best to explain. Buying refined gold from Jesus symbolizes the riches that we have in Jesus. White clothes to wear from Jesus symbolizes the robes of righteousness, which essentially means that because of what Jesus did on the cross, when our heavenly Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. He sees us and declares us in having a right standing with him because of what Jesus did. And because of Jesus, we are not spiritually blind. We can see. And so Jesus' point here is without me, without me, Church of Laodicea, you have nothing. Without me, you you could have all the gold in the world and still be poor. Without me, you could have all the medicine in the world and still be blind. Without me, without what I did for you on the cross, you you wouldn't have anything. And so I know that this, this can be a, um, a harsh truth and there's part of me that even kind of hesitated like, hey, first TLR back, you know. What should I share? And, and if this comes with a sting, if it hurts in some way and kind of how it's being delivered, he does reassure you and I, it's because he loves you too much to leave you and you're wondering and you're he says in verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. In other words, stop your lukewarm living. Stop being indifferent towards Jesus. Because that's really, in my opinion, what it means to be lukewarm just to be indifferent, and again, if if that seems a little like, geez, uh, that's a little like a little harsh. Here's the good news: uh, it is to, with Jesus is that on the other side of feeling uh, maybe pain um, is always healing, and so uh, when you and I repent, when we when we turn and actually move towards. Jesus, here's what Jesus is going to do for you at that moment. In verse 20, here I am. If you turn, if you turn towards and away from indifference and actually face me and want to have an intimate relationship with me, hey, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them. And he with me. I love that language. I will come in and eat with him. And he with me. Friends, Jesus is not afraid of your mess. He's not, again, like he's not put off by your mistakes. You can bring all that to him and he doesn't run away. He, in fact, wants to even come even closer and walk alongside. And so um, if you don't hear anything else I think this is, this is really what I want you to know. when we move away from indifference, when we move away from indifference, we can move into intimacy. When we move away from indifference, we can move into intimacy. Because I love that picture, right? Dining with Jesus is a picture of a deep personal relationship, the deepest and the safest and the truest personal relationship you could ever find. And so as we kind of end uh, the night, what, what does Jesus, through all of this, this text in Revelation, what does Jesus ultimately want us to repent of? What does he want us to stop going in this direction and move and move in his direction? What does he want you and I to repent of? Most of the time, you probably think, oh, well, it's, it probably has to do something with, with lust or, you know, hey, cussing or whatever. Kind of some of those big, you know, like notorious sins. It's just so easy. I'm not saying like, you know, those should be condoned or anything. But do you know through this text what he is saying for you and me to repent of? Indifference. Indifference towards our Savior. And that's what Jesus wanted for that church. That's what Jesus wants for this church and for this college ministry. He wants the church to repent of the indifference to live a life fully in fellowship and apprenticeship to Jesus. To live in a way that will actually be helpful for those who are trying to figure out more of who Jesus is to actually live in a way that will be influential to the, to the church and those wanting to be a part of it, locally and throughout the world. And uh, I don't think it's an accident that Jesus calls us, again, away from one into the other, because if you think about this, indifference really is poison to intimacy. Because if the end goal is an intimate relationship with Jesus, then indifference is the ultimate enemy. I said earlier, I'm I'm married, Ellen and I, we've been married 16 years, been together for about 17 and a half. I love her, I still do. I still tell her that. I say, Ellen, I love you. I say, Ellen, I love you. I say, Ellen, I love you over and over and over again. And God willing, I will say that until we both die together, hopefully holding hands <laughs> in our bed when we're 1,000. Actually, I don't want to live that long. Um, 100, that's fair, drop a zero. But I can tell her that I love her all that much, all the time, and, but the reality is if I don't show her if I don't don't serve her, if if I don't encourage her, if I don't show her, again, tangible evidence of that love, then, and she has told me, hey, those words seem hollow, or they might not mean anything. So the more I actually can show her love, not prove my love, but show her love through tangible expressions, put into action, The more our relationship and our marriage thrives, the more our relationship thrives, the more that we end up loving each other. And it's this beautiful circle. And in the same way, our relationships with Jesus is something that we should never actually be indifferent towards. There should be intentionality and urgency in our relationship with him. And friends I uh I always kind of joke a little bit at my age um, but I, I actually love being 44 my Hank Aaron birthday my Hank Aaron year three Braves hands um I still feel super young but folks can I just can I just tell you that there is so much regret that you will have if you have a life that is indifferent towards Jesus. For those of you that have placed your faith in Jesus at some point in the world, and now it's just kind of become, you become a little bit, you know, apathetic towards it. And again, no judgment. But may I just tell you that you really will reflect back and have some regret if indifference does define your relationship with him. And so that's why, again, Jesus was challenging Laodicea to repent. In fact, it's the fourth time when you read in the letters of him calling out the churches to repent. And it's really just an imperative, right? It's a decisive act to move completely from one direction to another. To move from indifference towards actually wanting to follow. And so I, uh, I think it's worth considering before I pray and, and tell you what's next. Um, have you been living indifferent to Jesus? I, mean, I, I would love for you to think about that. It is, it is a challenging question. Have you been living indifferent to Jesus? Have you become... Uh, lukewarm in your living. And if so, uh, Jesus invites you, and Jesus invites me to repentance. And the beautiful thing tonight, as best as you can understand, you, you do want to repent away from the indifference that, as Jesus said here, he's promised to just be right there, right there to meet you where you're at.